Our text uh, tonight is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5, but I do want to spend some time on the context as well as the text itself. So 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 5, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ, or possibly that could be translated the patient waiting for Christ. But uh, I think the New King James is probably the, the better translation, into the patience of Christ. We need to just look firstly at the background of this second letter to the Thessalonians, to the Christians at Thessalonica. Paul has uh, been writing to them uh, and uh, once more this letter is particularly speaking about the second coming of Christ and as we shall see um, they had to believe that uh, wonderful doctrine that wonderful truth almost to a fault because some of them because of their literal uh, believing that Jesus should come right within their generation uh, some of them had even stopped working and were just waiting. Uh, they'd taken a virtue to uh, an extreme degree and it had become a fault. And at the end of the letter, that is being dealt with. But there were reasons why they should be reacting in this way. It wasn't just that they were full of faith and hope and love, although they were that. They were churches. They, they were a church that were greatly commended by the apostle, especially in his first letter, as we have learned in the Bible studies that John has been doing on this letter. But there was also a more sinister reason for their, uh, their aberrant behavior. And we notice at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that's harking back to what he said in the first letter, how we shall meet him in the air, meet Christ in the air, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Here was a company of faithful Christians who, if the devil can't get them one way through just simply not believing the truth, he was trying to push them in another direction, to the other extreme of taking a particular truth and living in an unbalanced way and ignoring other truths and other duties of the Christian life. And so the background here is that this is a group of Christians who are in danger and perhaps some already have become shaken in mind and troubled. Uh, there was something that had entered into their experience to upset them and alarm them and we see as we progress through chapter two the kinds of things that Paul has in mind firstly the whole issue of spiritual deception um, people were standing up in the name of Christ uh, by spirit as it were and signs and wonders perhaps were being performed we see later on in chapter two how he speaks of the lawless one who comes with lying wonders and apparent power and signs. And perhaps the Christians already had experienced some of these false teachers, these prophecies 
and uh, signs which were not based on the word of God. They came from another source. They came from strange fire, as it were. And he, he wants to ground them uh, and prevent them from being disturbed and troubled by this as they perhaps focused on wrong teaching, unbalanced teaching concerning the end of the world and the second coming. So there was a whole issue of spiritual deception and even to the point of people writing letters as though from the apostles. Uh, We know how the apostle Paul has something to say about letters flying between churches uh, as he writes to the Corinthians. But this is, this is something worse. This is people pro- saying that they, uh, having a letter, they said, which was from the apostles and from Paul. Uh, it was just sheer um, lies. And we're not immune, are we not, uh, to that kind of deception, that kind of spiritual deception. People stand up saying they've had a vision or they've had some word from the Lord and then out comes something which greatly disturbs Christians, Christians particularly who know their Bibles because it's, it's not rooted and grounded in the truth and it adds to Scripture, of course. Any claim to speak a direct word from the Lord is adding to Scripture because the canon of God's word is closed. There's no more to be said. That's what the last verses of the book of Revelation is about. And then as you go on in chapter 2, there's secondly the whole issue of extreme spiritual wickedness. Um, We're not going to spend tonight looking at this lawless one and who he might be. Uh, Various candidates arise for that, for the Antichrist. Um, uh, And I think, let me just say this, that the Roman Catholic papacy has a very good claim to be this one. Although no doubt they would... completely deny the fact. But nonetheless, whoever this lawless one is, the spirit of Antichrist is always present. Wickedness in the place of God, speaking as though they were God and seeking to lord it over the churches. Spiritual deception, spiritual wickedness, and then thirdly, just the fact of spiritual opposition. As he says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Uh, Notice the lack of saving faith often can issue in wickedness and unreasonableness, and those Uh, who in any way have sought to live for Christ and speak for Christ, whether in public or private, have met opposition uh, from those who have not faith and they don't want faith. Not everybody is like that, of course, but he's saying there are these people around and we pray and ask you to pray for us that we may be delivered from them. And then he speaks In verse 3, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. So here's his concern. This is the background. He's concerned that they're going to be disturbed. They're going to be shaken in mind and troubled by these spiritual enemies. 
And I'm sure we're not stretching the point here as we come to chapter 3 and verse 5. We're not stretching the point to say there are other things too that can disturb and shake God's people. If we consider the what's so-called Olivet Discourse, which is there in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, all parallel passages on that discourse, we find Jesus warning his disciples of the kinds of pressures and stresses that will come. Not just persecution, not just opposition, but he speaks about nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, plagues, viruses. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Things to shake the minds, uh, not just of God's people, but of everybody. Men's hearts failing them for fear, natural disasters, diseases, Unusual happenings in this world, unusual happenings on land and on sea and in the skies. And Paul would have us, in the sense of two Thessalonians, he'd have us, he'd have every believer not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled by these things. Now in this, of course, uh, the Apostle Paul is following his Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how Jesus uh, comforted his disciples on the eve of his departure from this world, on the eve of his crucifixion, of his arrest and trial and crucifixion. And he knew that his disciples were shaken and disturbed. What did he say to them? Did he say, stop being such wimps, brace up? Of course not. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And brothers and sisters, the application here is not difficult. The application, I'm sure, is here right on the surface. Let not our hearts be troubled. Let us not be shaken in mind or troubled in our hearts by whatever is going on outside the church or even inside the church as it was for these Thessalonian believers. Let us hear what Paul says here and let us make sure of this that we're not going to let Satan get the victory in this sense of disturbing us and shifting our moorings, as it were, and taking our eyes off Christ. Remember what we heard last Sunday night. Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured such opposition against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So here is the background. And this background leads to the exhortations The exhortation which we have at the beginning of chapter 2, it's an exhortation uh, in effect uh, as he's beseeching these believers, as he's saying, now brethren, concerning these things, we ask you, we ask you, 
not to be like this. Notice he doesn't order them around. There's a gentleness here. He refers to them as brethren. Because we're so fragile, aren't we? And we're so vulnerable. And sometimes we do need God as our father to chastise us. But sometimes we need God as a tender mother, as a loving mother, to dandle us on his knees, to kiss us with the kisses of his love coming from his mouth, which is his word, that his word should come to us with comfort. And surely this is what the apostle is doing here with these Thessalonians. He's got some exhortation and perhaps some negative things to say at the end of this letter, but it's all within the context that he loves them and he wants their hearts to be settled and established in Christ and he doesn't want them to be shaken and troubled and at their wit's end. And so he beseeches them by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. In other words, he's saying, look, the final victory is certain. Whatever is going to happen, however bad it gets, Jesus Christ is going to win. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead for you. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven on your behalf as your great high priest. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he is coming again to you and you will be gathered to him. Not one believer will be lost. Not one soldier left dead on the battlefield. The whole church, the whole ransom church will be saved. Saved to sin no more. And so he said, don't be troubled. Don't be disturbed. And as part of this not being troubled, notice there's another exhortation here. In verse 15 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught whether by word or uh, epistle. Now the traditions there mean simply the apostolic doctrine because you notice what the traditions are. They're that which the apostles taught, whether through his oral teaching or through his letters, which are now inscripturated truth. In other words, as we are not troubled and as we are enabled not to be disturbed we can stand fast in the truth. And then we come thirdly, uh, after the background and the exhortations, to what the apostle has to say about our resources in this reaction. And I want to just draw your attention to general resources, or the general point, and then we come to the particular, the text tonight. And my, uh, what I have to say on the text is not too lengthy. But let's just look at what he says in general notice how at the end of chapter 2 he utters this prayer now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work what a, a gracious prayer that is now may our lord jesus christ himself and our god and father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and work notice again he's praying for god to comfort them and he's praying for god to establish them in his word 
and in good works that flow from faith in Christ. And here is the prayer of the apostle, and through the apostle it's the prayer of our great high priest for us. Our Savior is praying for us that we won't be disturbed, but that we will be comforted, that we won't be like wet hens rushing around, but that our hearts will be established in every good word and work. And as he prays that in general, let's look at the resources for this in particular. And we come to a further prayer in a few more li- in a few lines on. He comes to utter, in a sense, the same prayer, but there's a particularity about it. Chapter three, verse five. Now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Here is the prayer of the apostle for every believer. A prayer for us. A prayer of the Holy Spirit for us. Now may the Lord direct your heart into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Notice firstly that he's speaking here of a particular place. And notice that this is all still part of of fulfilling this uh, exhortation that we shouldn't be shaken in mind or troubled. And here is his answer to this. He's saying there is a particular place. We can think of it geographically because he speaks in that way. It's a metaphor. There's a particular place. It's called, and it is the place of the love of God, the love of Christ. And also you can think of it as the same place or perhaps another room along the passage Another place, the patience of Christ. And here's the place in which God would direct us, to to which God would direct us, the love of God and the patience of Christ. Now that phrase, the love of God, the commentators uh, puzzle over it. Does it mean our response of love to God? That this is what... This place is, which establishes our hearts and keeps us from uh, disturbance, our love to God, or does it mean God's love to us? And uh, I think one commentator, uh, Leon Morris, has it right when he says it's really uh, one of those delightful ambiguities that you sometimes find in Scripture and in Paul's writings where basically it means both. that the language allows for both interpretations quite naturally. Here is a prayer. It's not just a prayer for believers, really. It's a prayer for anybody. May the Lord direct your heart into this place of where you receive and enjoy the love of God. Now, what is that love? Is that a love which just, as it were, says, there, there, don't worry, everything will be all right, Emphatically not. Emphatically not. It's a love which is expounded for us, for example, in Romans chapter 5, where we read these words. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he's brought out the enormity of that. That we, some people 
will die for a righteous man, but that takes a lot of doing. It can happen, but uh, it's, it's a rare thing for someone to lay down their life for someone else. Uh, but if they're a good person, they might do it. But we weren't good people. None of us were born good. We were born in our sins. Romans chapter 3. All have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. Our tongues, our motivations, our imaginations, our our feet are swift to run to do evil. And uh, the the thoughts of our hearts are evil all the time. And uh, the Bible takes the lid off the, the vile cesspit of our soul in the sight of a holy God. And yet it's, it's us who God loved so much that he gave his only begotten son that we might live through him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And having died for us, having caused us to be justified by his blood, saved from wrath through him. And then in the same chapter, he pours into our hearts the Holy Spirit And we know and experience the love of God in our souls. Now here's a place for every heart to be directed into. Have you ever come into that place? It's a delightful place. It's a garden of Eden. It's paradise restored. The Song of Solomon is all about it. That place which is where the bridegroom meets with his bride. That place where the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. That banqueting house where his banner over me was love. Yes, these may have actual geographic references, but surely they're also in terms of the teaching of Scripture, they're a teaching concerning the experience of Christ, the mutual experience between my beloved and me, about the heart of that covenant of grace, when God gives himself to us and we respond to him. Like an apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. You can be in this place of the love of God in a prison as the Apostle Paul was or as Samuel Rutherford was or as many of people today who are persecuted for the faith are. You can be in that banqueting house in the most disgusting, most awful kind of conditions if God brings you into that because of your faithfulness to him. The love of God is paradise restored. More blessings than their father lost, as Isaac Watts puts it, more blessings than Adam lost is to come into this place. Yes, heaven is such a place, but he's not talking about heaven here. He's not saying, may the Lord take you off to heaven. He's talking about a place here on earth, in this world, as you are Thessalonian believers, uh, as you have to daily labor and earn your bread and, and, and so on. 
there is still this place, the love of God, and may God direct your heart into it. And, of course, there's another aspect to this, or another room, you might say, or another place. It's called the patience of Christ. And we were directed to this last Sunday night so helpfully by our preacher. The patience of Christ, his endurance, his example, blazing a trail for us, the pioneer of our faith, setting the seal to all those other trailblazers in Hebrews chapter 11 who endured such suffering of whom the world was not worthy and yet they pressed on because they sought that city which is above because they know that that there is a reward to him that diligently seeks God. They know that we're following Christ and we therefore are to run with endurance the race that is set before us into that place. So there is this place that you and I can be in. Let me secondly tell you there's a skillful navigator, a skilled navigator to get you into that place. Who is it? It's God, the Lord. And it's very probably Christ himself that the apostle is speaking of. In verse 16 of chapter 2, The prayer is addressed to Christ. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father comfort your hearts. And as he's used the word Lord again, maybe it's particularly Christ who he has in mind. This skillful navigator, there's none like him to lead the people of God. Remember, he was there in the wilderness for 40 years, leading the people of God the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the rock that followed them. It seemed a very tortuous journey. It was a tortuous journey. And yet ever nearer it came to the promised land, to the land flowing with milk and honey. Unerringly, he took them there at just the right time. He had that at the end of the journey. Or if we think of a more uh, recent experience of the people of God in the, in the scriptures in Acts chapter 16 think of Paul in his journeys and in that time of perplexity when they had gone through uh, verse 6 now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia they were fid- forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia after they had come to Mycenae they tried to go into Bithynia but the Spirit did not permit them So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And my point in referring to this is this. Here is another example of God's skill in guiding and navigating his people. He knew that it was right at this point that the apostles should suffer perplexity. We heard of that this morning. Perplexed but not in despair. There were lessons for them to learn, but the Holy Spirit was still leading them. And eventually the outcome was a wonderful new mission field in Europe, no less. Come to Macedonia and help us. And you see, our God 
our Saviour, Jesus Christ. He is well able to direct your heart into the love of God. He's a skilled navigator, but he's also a unique gatekeeper and navigator. We can think of him as a gatekeeper. Only he can open the door into that place, the love of God and the patience of Christ. Only he can do it. You and I cannot do it by effort, by our good works, by our promises to ourselves or to others or to God. No, we depend upon Christ himself to take us into this place. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. It's to him you must pray to take your heart into this place. This place of safety. This place where whatever is happening outside and around you, you will not be soon shaken in mind or troubled. It's to Christ you must look and go. A unique gatekeeper and a loving saviour. This example, just take one example of a person whose heart was directed into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. An actual example from the Bible. And I refer to Stephen the evangelist Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, there, having been picked on by people stirred up from the Sanhedrin, picked on by various uh, of the synagogue of the free men, uh, eventually through lies, they bring Stephen to the Sanhedrin court with the accusation we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us, a clever mixture of truth and falsehood and therefore overall a blatant falsehood. But notice, all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Something was going on in his heart, wasn't it? A man's wisdom causes his face to shine. Yes, all around him was dreadful. He knew what was the next step, of course. He had no illusions, I'm sure as to where it was all going to head. But his face shone, the love of God, the patient endurance of Christ. And then come to the end of chapter 7 and see him here as they begin to throw stones at him, uh, to stone him to death. He's given his testimony, full of the Holy Spirit, gazing into heaven. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cry with a loud voice. They stop their ears. They drag him out of the town and they stone him. And they stone Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. 
His heart was still in paradise. His heart was in that garden that we were reading about in the Song of Solomon. He was at Christ's banqueting house. This is the answer that the Apostle Paul knows that these believers need above all else in their agitation, in their inward trouble. They needed this place of safety, this place of stability above all else, that their heart should be led into the love of God and into the patient endurance of Christ. And so it should be for us, brothers and sisters, and indeed for each of us, if you never yet trusted in Christ. Let me close by bringing to you three quotations. Not from the scriptures, actually, but three quotations. The first is from a Puritan called Thomas Goodwin. There is light that that cometh and overpowereth a man's soul and assureth him that God is his and he is God's and that God loveth him from everlasting. It is a light beyond the light of ordinary faith. The next thing to heaven, you have no more. You can have no more till you come thither. It is faith elevated and raised up above its ordinary rate. It is the electing love of God brought home to the soul. That's what happens in this place. The electing love of God is brought home to your soul. Let me quote to you from C.H. Spurgeon. Let me say now that it is possible for a man to know whether God has called him or not. That means to salvation. And he may know it too, beyond a doubt. He may know it as surely as if he read it with his own eyes. Nay, he may know it more surely than that. For if I read a thing with my eyes, even my eyes may deceive me. The testimony of sense may be false, but the testimony of the Spirit must be true. We have the witness of the Spirit within, bearing witness with our spirits that we are born of God. There is such a thing on earth as an infallible assurance of our election. Let a man once get that, and it will anoint his head with fresh oil. It will clothe him with the white garment of praise, And put the song of the angel into his mouth. Happy, happy man. Who is fully assured of his interest in the covenant of grace. In the blood of atonement. And in the glories of heaven. Such men there are here this very day. Let them rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And then finally from a journal. Written in 1735 by the great Welsh Exhorter, Hal Harris. June the 18th, 1735. Being in secret prayer, I felt suddenly my heart melting within me like wax before the fire with love to God, my Savior, and also felt not only love and peace, etc., but longing to be dissolved and to be with Christ. Then was a cry in my inmost soul which I was totally unacquainted with before. Abba, Father, Abba, Father. I could not help calling God my Father. I knew that I was his child and that he loved me and heard me. 
My soul being filled and satiated cried, "'Tis enough, I am satisfied, give me strength, and I will follow thee through fire and water. I could say I was happy indeed. There was in me a well of water springing up to everlasting life. The love of God was shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Ghost, Romans 5, 5. Brothers and sisters, each one here tonight, may the Lord direct your heart, your hearts, into the love of God and into the patience of Christ.